turned to me, and it had no face. A twisted human figure crawling like a spider. And then all we hear is the creaking of that door. I dismissed it as a dream. You know when you can just feel something is hovering right behind you. They could see us, but we couldn't see them. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. I'm Sapphire Sindalo. As a Filipino-American who's been obsessed with the supernatural my entire life, I've always been disappointed by the lack of diversity in the paranormal community. So I created Stories with Sapphire, an award-winning podcast that is on a mission to share more multicultural stories about ghosts, folklore, and spirituality from an empathetic point of view. Even if you're not a believer, I hope my show inspires you to look at the world a little differently. New episodes every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And in between those weeks, I release a spooky animated video on my YouTube channel. Head over to storieswithsapphire.com for more information. That's Sapphire, S-A-P-P-H-I-R-E. Salamat and good night. Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. As I just said, my name is Derek Hayes, and I am the creator, curator, and host of this little ragtag production. Here we share true tales of the paranormal, unexplained and monstrous. Real stories that affect real people. If this is your first time listening, you're in for a bit of a ride. Because you see, tonight's season 11 premiere episode is the long-awaited Waterworker special. The common thread of all these stories is that they somehow involve working with, on, in, or around bodies of water. So strap on that life preserver, batten down the hatches, and meet me on deck for an evening of hauntings on the high seas and beasts below the waves. Ladies and gentlemen, your season 11 premiere. Before we explore the depths with our first caller, I grew up in the Appalachian foothills of Ohio. And water wasn't a big deal there. That is, unless it flooded, which it did occasionally. But what I mean is that we didn't have large lakes or even wide rivers. In fact, the small creek that ran through our region is famous for stranding the only paddle boat foolish enough to ever try to navigate its log-choked and muddy waters. But that all changed when I moved away for college. I attended a school some 30 miles away from Lake Erie. And that's when I got my first taste of the Great Lakes. 
And in that introduction, I also learned of a legendary shipwreck on one of these treacherous masses of water. November 10th, 1975, a ship carrying iron ore destined for the port of Detroit slipped beneath the icy waters of Lake Superior. The ghost of the Great Lakes herself, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend lives on from the Chippewa down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Superior, they said, never gives up the dead when the gales of November come early. There is still no trace of survivors in the Great Lakes freighter Edmund Fitzgerald, which capsized in Lake Superior last night. From Thunder Bay, Jim Simonak. We don't know whether the 729-foot ore carrier, the Edmund Fitzgerald, broke in half, capsized, or nosedived into Lake Superior. But its disappearance last night was sudden. It wasn't even a May Day or even an SOS. The boat was on radar surveillance for 10 minutes by an accompanying boat, but about 7.30 last night it vanished. Winds were gusting up to 80 miles an hour, and waves were swelling to 25 and 40 feet on the lake. The Edmund Fitzgerald is at the bottom, and there's no doubt about that. The search helicopters have already found considerable debris. Lieutenant William Holtz of the U.S. Coast Guard base in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, says the vessel has been officially declared lost. Now that original broadcast via Canada's CBC Radio. And as Gordon Lightfoot mentioned in his 1976 single, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. And come early they did that faithful night. But as it turns out, those words aren't as true as they used to be. As WNEM News 5 out of Saginaw explains in this retro clip from the mid-1990s. Okay, I understand that the, uh, that the body is not in the wreckage itself. Uh, no, negative. It's down on the seacore next to the wreckage. Finding the first clue as to the whereabouts of the Fitzgerald's crew was a mixed emotion for the members of Expedition 94. There was sorrow, but also a sense of achievement. After all, no trace of the 29 men has been seen in 20 years. That is unbelievable. Why weren't you expecting that? There's 29 people on that ship. Well, because previous investigations to the Fitzgerald had never revealed any bodies or really never, uh, not a lot of uh, personal effects. Uh, they looked into crew's quarters, they looked into uh, companionways, they looked into hallways, they, they looked into every opening that they could and, and never saw any indication of a crew member. Two guest passengers actually made the discovery near the bow section of the wreck. Jack Purvis and his son Scott say the adventure was unforgettable. We've discussed it and in fact uh, Scott was uh, almost expecting to see a body. He had discussed it before we went down thinking that we might see something and what it would be like and uh, We'd been at, a, at the funeral home a week ago to uh, visit a friend, and uh, so it wasn't much different. It's so, so quiet and dark down there. It reminds me of a church, and knowing that God's down there. Yeah, sure, kid. There's no telling what else is down there either. The thought of a man going down to the bottom like that with the ship, it just sends 
shivers down my spine. But it's not the former crew or their bodies that folks on the lake say they see these days. Reports spanning nearly half a century detail a ghostly vessel that slides in and out of the fog that rests on the lake's surface. A ship many claim looks exactly like that of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And in the book, Paranormal Great Lakes by Charles Cassidy Jr., he writes of one such an encounter and details the gruesome scene met by the first sub to visit the wreck some 500 feet below the surface. Here's a sampling from that book. Duluth resident Wendy Mitchell reported that she and her boyfriend had seen the unmistakable freighter on Halloween night in 1980, entering Duluth's harbor and passing under the aerial bridge, which accommodatingly raised to admit the great ship. Mitchell said her boyfriend talked to the bridge operators who said they were duly signaled by the ghost and could hear the sounds of sledgehammers opening hatches as the ship passed beneath. Some comment has been made into the UFOs and USOs counterculture of a sinister connection between a spat of UFO reports over the Great Lakes at the very time the Edmund Fitzgerald went down. The absence of crew bodies, a detail seized upon by alien abduction theorists, appears to have ended in 1994 when one of a succession of many submarine dives to the wreck disclosed decomposing human remains clad in canvas life jackets on the lake bottom. I have an amazing episode lined up for you guys. So what do you say? We said sail. Our first entry of the evening comes to us from a coast guardsman from the shores of the old line state. Derek, hello, my name is Mitt, and I used to be active duty Coast Guard stationed in Maryland. This took place back around 2016, 2017, like I said, out on the Chesapeake Bay, and it was around winter time, I believe. Late one night, we were on duty, and we got a call for a flare sighting. Super common call, uh, just means that someone somewhere thought that they saw a flare. So uh, obviously we take that very seriously and we have to go out no matter what. Even if we think it's a firework, we have to go and we have to do a search just to make sure that there's no one in trouble. So we got this call for the flare sighting. I can't remember what time of night it was, but it was pretty late. I'm going to say around two or three in the morning. And what was very peculiar right off the bat about this call was our only contact information we had was it was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Og, uh, O-G-G. So we thought that was kind of suspicious uh, right off the bat. We thought maybe this is a prank, but regardless, we had to take it seriously. So we get on scene and it's super late and it's uh, our boat and we had another response boat with us. And we have our blue lights on because we're doing a search. And all of a sudden over channel 16, which is the uh, uh, maritime hailing and distress channel that every boat is required to listen in on when you're out on the water. And it's primarily for emergencies and for hailing other boats. You can tap into this channel if you have a ham radio, I believe. So this guy, Mr. Og, all of a sudden hails us. We can't tell where he is or where this is coming from, but he says, hey, I can see you. I can see your blue lights. Um, So we think, okay, he's on the shore somewhere. Um, Either he's on his boat or he has a ham radio and he's sitting on his porch. So he's not giving us a lot of information, but he says, I see your blue lights and you guys are right in the general vicinity of where he saw this flare. And we're not getting a lot of description from him, not getting a whole lot of information. 
and we're doing our search, and I can't remember how long we had been on the scene when all of a sudden it was only me and one other guy that saw it. Everybody else was kind of looking off either side of the boat, looking for, you know, maybe somebody in the water or a boat that's sinking. And me and the other guy were the only two that saw this. We were looking forward in the boat. And all of a sudden, from over on the horizon, just past the woods on one side of the uh, water, the closer side to the shore. Like I said, this is out on the Chesapeake Bay, but we weren't too far out there. We see a green, what looks to be like a rocket, like an RPG almost, as if it had been fired from very, very high up. It didn't arc, which was weird to me because a flare arcs you would see, okay, this quickly came from land. This looked like it had been fired from on top of a building, but of course there's no buildings around. And it was the brightest thing I've ever seen. It, it lit up the sky. It went across the horizon in just a blink of an eye. I mean, it must have lasted maybe two seconds tops. And like I said, it was only me and one other guy that saw it, or at least uh, the only other guy that admitted that he saw it. It was just the scariest, weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I, I'd been in for a while at that point. And seen a lot of weird, crazy, scary things, but that definitely was in the top 10. We never talked about it again. You know, we ended up calling the search later that night. Uh, we didn't end up finding anything. We never heard from Mr. Og again. And we all just kind of forgot about it. Nobody talked about it. Anyway, love your show. Long time listener, first time caller. Thanks. Hope you can use this. Bye. Thank you, sir. You know, I respect your work, but I do not envy you one bit. That line of work sounds absolutely terrifying. No, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it before, but I have a healthy respect for water. Some could even say it makes me nervous. Now, as if the thundering surf in the dark water wasn't enough to scare one silly, there is an odd man, or should I say an og man, and what I'm interpreting to be some sort of UFO at play here. A UFO in a sense that it was intelligently controlled. Now if that's the case, it's certainly not the first time we've heard of UFOs interacting with bodies of water. The Shag Harbor and Pascagoula UFO incidents immediately come to mind. But there are also purported bases beneath certain bodies of water. For example, the shores of Malibu, California. Also, the waters off of Coast Breeze, Florida. Both have been rumored to be locations for secret bases. Now, perhaps both of these sound a little far-fetched. But have you ever heard of Lake Baikal and its alien swimmers? Siberia, 1982. With a depth of 1,642 meters, Lake Baikal is the deepest freshwater lake in the world. Given the depth of the lake and its frigid temperature, little is known about what lies beneath the surface. Russian Navy divers are conducting a research mission. Seven Russian divers are at a depth of 50 meters, when suddenly the frogmen realize they are being watched. These strange humanoid figures were much bigger than human beings and appeared to be wearing helmets of some sort. What on earth are we to make of an encounter like this? It's one thing to talk about USOs, but quite another to talk about humanoid entities deep in the lake. These were large beings, human-shaped but like nine feet tall, wearing what seemed like very tight-fitting silvery suits. Not your normal scuba gear, basically. 
swimming in the water, what they've come to call the swimmers of Lake Baikal. The Russian divers then make a fateful decision. They try to capture one. The divers attempted to capture one of these creatures, but at this point, so the documents say, the entities reacted. A powerful unknown force suddenly propels the entire group of divers up from the deep water to the surface. They did a rapid rise to the surface of the water. Well, when you do that too fast, you suffer from decompression and you get the bends and it's deadly. There were seven of these divers and three of them died. According to Russian documents, the surviving divers were too shaken to speak about the incident. But researchers believe the Russian government prevented them from speaking out. And if that's the case, what could they have been trying to keep secret? That clip is courtesy of Quest. Now, this info was made public when Russia released formerly top-secret UFO files to the public. So make of that what you will. But I did manage to find an expedition made to the bottom of the world's deepest lake. And they lived to tell about it. When the two mini-subs reached the bed of Baikal, man was set at the bottom of the deepest freshwater lake on the planet. Earlier reports the lake was deeper than previously thought turned out to be groundless. Today we went 1,637 meters deep and moved about three and a half miles in different directions. The place is absolutely flat. There are no holes or trenches. The deepest point is 1,637 meters, as determined in 1991. Anyway, Baikal needs to be explored further as it's a rich, important scientific laboratory. That clip was courtesy of Russia today. So maybe the humanoids realized they'd been made, so they moved to Chesapeake Bay, perhaps. Thank you again, sir, for sharing your story. And please, be careful out there. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, I have a story that's perfect for this show. Well, I'm about to give you a chance to prove yourself right. You can submit your own true paranormal encounter by calling the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. The hotline is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Now our next entry keeps us with the military theme. Please welcome Eli to the program. Hey Derek, it's Eli again. Last time I called I was living in Hawaii. I'm currently transiting across America to my new station in Virginia calling for a water story. I'm in the Navy, so I have quite a few of these, especially from the year 2015. One of the scarier things that I think ever happened, but I believe was a demonic spirit that lived in one of the engineering spaces on board. So I worked on an LHD in the middle of the ocean, and what that basically is is a miniature aircraft carrier, mostly for helicopters. Well, I'm friends with so many people on the ship because I had been on the ship at this point three or four years, and I'm just walking around talking to a few guys one day and the subject of ghosts and hauntings came up and one of the guys was like, oh yeah, there's one down in this space we have. So me being the probably not so smart guy, but seeking out adventure and ghosts, especially asking which space. He said, oh, I'll take you down there, but just meet me back here around two o'clock because it seems to be the most active from 2.30 to 4.30. So I'm all giddy all night just waiting to go over there and i get up go over to the guy 
And sure enough, he's standing there waiting. He's like, all right, you ready? And the space was in a spot where you had to go down an actual ladder, not like the ladder wells, which is more like a stairwell, but an actual ladder. And it went down two stories or two decks, as we say in the Navy. So we get down there and it's a pretty big, mostly open space, except for some piping and some handle wheels and things like that. And he stopped at the small platform that was a story up because he didn't want to go down. And I'm like looking around, kind of dark, kind of musty. And I start hearing a little girl crying, being with some of the situations I've been in, my ghost hunting adventures, I was a little freaked out. But being the adventurous type, I go looking. I get back towards about midway through, and on the back side of the space, there's just pipes everywhere, and then a big stand-up thing that's got dials and stuff all over it. And I kind of peek around it, and I can see a figure curled up in a ball, crying but i can tell that this is not anything i want to get closer to because it does not look like a little girl if i had to describe it it had to look like oh man i don't even really know how to describe it it was just this creepy skeletal looking tight fleshed looking thing and i start backing away and when i backed away i bumped into a pipe and it made a very loud ding so i kind of look back at the pipe and i look back to where this figure was it is not there so i go bolting towards the ladder and when i turn back around i can see it coming out from behind this big stand-up thing with dials and stuff all over it and it has no face it is just this fleshy skeletal object person thing and it is not happy from what i'm feeling coming off of this thing that was one of the creepier things that happened so when i was a senior in high school living in southeast texas galveston had a slitter bond that would open up at christmas so i got picked up for the job and while i was in galveston i got put up in a hotel and all that kind of good stuff made some pretty good friends with some of the other lifeguards that were hanging out there and a couple from houston a couple from galveston and one from beaumont one night we didn't have to go into work the next day we decided that we were going to go explore the the island of galveston one of the local guys said, hey, I know this place is kind of creepy. We should all head over that way. So we're just all walking around, doing our thing, talking, drinking sodas, eating snacks, whatever. And we get to this area where it's a bunch of old houses that were surviving houses of the big hurricane they had in Galveston years ago. While walking around there, everything is super quiet. It's a historical district. A couple of the houses are lived in. Most of them are made up for museums and things like that. So we're just kind of walking around and at one end of this historical district is where the beach is. And we're coming from the far end, from the inland side, heading out towards the water. And as we are getting closer and closer to the water, we keep hearing this like crying noise. And we're like, somebody out there crying? Like we should go check them out. You know, make sure everybody's okay. I mean, we're all lifeguards, we all have a responsibility to make sure anybody's okay, especially near water. So we're walking out there and we get closer and closer and the crying is getting louder and louder until we get to the water and where the water is, I don't know if you've ever heard of Galveston Island, but they raised the entire island several feet. So there's this big concrete embankment. And as we look down to the water from the top of this concrete embankment, we can see somebody that looks like they're crying next to the water. So me and one of the guys from Houston, 
uh, who had a lot more training and things like that in both lifeguarding and lifesaving, decided that we were going to just crawl down this embankment and get close to them. So we crawled down, and as we get to the bottom, all of our friends that are up top just start screaming, he's behind you, he's behind you, he's behind you. And we turn around, and this guy, looking like he had wood chips in his face and everything like that, is standing right behind us. I mean, he was clear as day. We both jumped back and kind of startled, but when we came back to our senses, he was nowhere to be found. We looked up at our friends, and they were like, he just vanished, dude. We're not all historians or anything like that, so we don't know exactly who this guy was, but we know it was a pretty creepy thing and assumed that he was probably one of the many that died during the uh, Galveston Island hurricane. Anyway, love the show, Derek. Keep it up. Bye. Thanks, Eli. You know, I'll begin with the entity on board. I struggle to think how something like that could find itself cast away on a high-tech military carrier. Unless someone somehow brought this thing with them. Perhaps as an attachment of some sort. My other thought is that the steel used in the construction of the vessel was possibly recycled from something formerly associated with the creature. But I'll be honest, that's all above my pay grade. But the second story that Eli shared, the man on shore that he and his friends saw in Galveston. Before we go further, I think it's important that everyone fully grasp the magnitude of that natural disaster back in 1900. Here's a crash course by KVUE, ABC News, out of Austin. It was called the grandest city in Texas at the dawn of the 20th century, Galveston, with the largest port, the biggest mansions, the most millionaires, and some of the first telephones and electric lights in Texas. But with the arrival of the hurricane of 1900, Galveston would struggle to ever regain its former status. So devastating was this storm that it's estimated that nearly a fourth of the city's population died. The worst natural disaster in U.S. history with a staggering death toll, as many as 8,000 dead. So many that their bodies were loaded on barges and dumped at sea, only to have the cadavers wash ashore. Survivors lit huge funeral pyres to dispose of the unfortunate, most of whom had drowned when a 15-foot tide swept across a city only five feet above sea level. At the time of the hurricane, the U.S. Weather Bureau had been in operation for 10 years, but erroneously predicted that it would take a sharp turn north and hit Florida. No warnings for the people of Galveston. So given that nearly 8,000 died, it wouldn't be much of a stretch to imagine a spirit or two hanging around. But to come face to face with one, in those circumstances, no thanks. But thank you, Eli, for the stories, and good luck in Virginia. Well, speaking of being doomed to spend eternity on the shores of life, this wouldn't be a water special without a story or two about the weeping woman herself, Central America's water-roaming, murderous spirit, La Llorona, courtesy of an unknown caller. Hi, Derek. I really enjoy your podcast. Yeah, I've been binge listening to it for a couple of weeks now. And the Knights of the Round Table episode where you guys talk about La Llorona 
was actually very accurate. I don't know who it was that said that he felt like the Latin community was kind of cheated out of like this really good story. I agree 100% La Llorona is rooted in like Latin culture and I think they could have just done a lot better bringing in some more Latin flavor to the movie. But anyways, so that podcast, that particular episode reminded me of La Llorona sightings that my mom claims my both my grandfather and my great-grandfather had in Mexico. My great-grandfather, and this was back in like the early 1900s in Morelia, Mexico, uh, and Morelia has a river that runs through it. He used to work as like a night watchman that would kind of patrol the streets, you know, with um, a lantern and patrol the cement, everything's fine. So he was saying that one night after his shift started at like seven o'clock at night. So one night he's walking through the street and he sees this woman across the street. He doesn't see her face, but she's got um, a long white dress, very long black hair, and he can tell that she's in distress. She's like uh, whimpering and crying a little bit. He um, runs up to catch up to her and he asks her if everything's all right and she doesn't respond. She just keeps walking away from him. So he moves to um, touch her elbow and as soon as he puts his hand on her elbow, she turns around and it's not the face of a woman, it's the face of a horse. It shocks him so much that he faints on the spot and as everything's kind of going black, he hears her cry out, my children. And that's the last thing he hears before everything goes black. It's at night now, um, so he's kind of passed out on the street by himself. There's nobody to help him up. So when he finally comes to, there's no woman, nobody around, and all he can remember is the echoes of her crying. So that was my grandmother's father. And my grandmother herself also claims to have seen La Llorona. So they live also in Morelia. They live in like a farm near the river and she says that one night and then this was when she was maybe about five or six years old so again 1920s Morelia Mexico she's about five or six years old and she hears knocking on the door and she goes to to the door and it's a huge like padlock and stuff and she's only like five she can't reach it to open it but she hears somebody knocking and crying on the other side so she gets a stool and goes up to like look through the peephole and she at first sees the chest of a woman wearing a white dress and she can tell that this person has long black hair uh, and she kind of bends down to try to look further up into the face of a person and she sees not the face of a woman but the face of a horse. It scares her, it startles her, and she goes to run to my uh, great-grandmother to tell her there's a horse mocking. My grandmother dismisses it as some sort of like a joke or like the imagination of a child, but she goes and opens the door and they like look around outside and there's nothing. So it's like twilight, it's starting to get dark and there's nobody there. And my great-grandmother dismisses it as just a figment of her imagination, but my grandmother swears to the day she died that he heard the knock, heard the cries, and saw the woman with the face of a horse. So the horse face is a little new. I don't remember if it was touched upon in your podcast, but 
they say that you know you've seen La Llorona versus a regular woman in white ghost because she was cursed for having killed her kids. And she's cursed to, of course, walk the earth near bodies of water, usually rivers, looking for her kids. And she has the head of a horse. So, yeah, I've had... So it was my uh, my great-grandfather, my grandmother, and a couple of different family members in Mexico that have sweared to this day that they have heard whimpering and crying near the Morelia River and that have seen this La Llorona with the face of the horse. Anyways, I enjoy your podcast. Can't wait to hear this episode on the radio. Thank you. Thank you, caller. And I believe that person you're referring to was actually me. I just think if you're going to make a film about a Latin American legend, maybe have a Latino or two in the lead. Anyway, off of my soapbox. Both of these tellings have a detail that I don't recall ever hearing about before. A detail I'm sure I couldn't have forgotten. The mention of the entity having a horse's face. Now, I did a little digging, and I found a few mentions of this detail. So perhaps it's simply a variant, like your sheep or bat squatch. But then again, thinking visually and also rationally, did someone mistake hair in a veil for a horse head and a mane? I'd rather think that than the thought of a dead woman roaming the shores with a horse's head. It's creepy stuff. So thank you again, caller, for sharing the entry. Now, I'll keep this brief, but don't forget to support your favorite podcast by purchasing a t-shirt, hat, tote, or coming soon, pins and patches. Sarah and I, mostly her, have been working hard to source some fresh new designs and high-quality products. So visit the shop at Monsters Among Us Podcast forward slash shop and pick up some goodies today. Now our next entry takes us back to Texas, where James has the kind of water tale that you can really sink your teeth into. What's up, Derek? James from Texas. Just wanted to give you a call. It wasn't my sighting, but my grandfather and my uncle... They grew up in uh, Deep East Texas, and there's a river there called the Trinity River. And a lot of people know it, especially from Texas, but known for its alligator gars. Well, the story goes, my grandfather and uncle were bow fishing for these gars in the river way back in, uh, I don't even know when, probably 60s or 70s. Anyhow, they uh, they came into this one little area, and my grandfather was in the front of the boat, and my uncle was in the back of the boat. Both of them, at the same time, stood up in the boat and started to draw their bow. My grandfather said he saw a head. My uncle said he saw a tail. And then suddenly, my grandfather just happened to look between the two, and there was a shadow connecting the head and the tail. And he told my uncle to drop the frickin' bow and let's get out of here. <laughs> to give you an idea, they were in a John boat that was 12 foot long. And the shadow of the gar exceeded that John boat. 
so they estimated the guard would be up to about 15 foot long, and they were not going to even try <laughs> to tackle that beast. So enjoy the show, man. Keep it going, and talk to you soon. Thanks, bud. Thanks, James. You know, for someone that doesn't like water, I sure do love fishing. I used to be quite good at it, too. And I find myself braving all sorts of waters, rod in hand. Places I'm certain I'd otherwise never go empty-handed. And it's stories like James's that's one of the reasons I feel that way. But 15 feet. You know, the world record is an 8-footer, weighing in at 327 pounds. Nearly half the size of the creature James purported. So I set out in search of other accounts of these prehistoric beasts reaching that near-impossible length. Well, lo and behold, I found what I was looking for. And on one of my favorite television programs, no less. Jeremy Wade's River Monsters. 140 miles from the ocean, I'm on a mission to get face-to-face with a monster of the Deep South. The Alligator Gar, a shark-sized river-dweller. At Lake Livingstone on the Trinity River in Texas, I seek out legendary fisherman Bobby Fly for some clues on how to find a giant specimen. He caught one seven feet long that put him in the Hall of Fame, and he believes there are still big gar around on the Trinity. Now I have seen one 14 foot long down there, darkfish. Oh, oh really? Mm-hmm. And I was tied up in the top of a willow tree with a 14 foot flat bottom, and this bad boy come right up beside me and just surface right there. And I seen the front of my boat and the back of my boat, and I seen fish all the way. So I immediately pulled up the slack, undone my rope, and went on to the house. <laughs> I didn't hang around. But this sighting was in 1987. Now that clip was pulled from season one, episode two of that highly recommended series. So it's 14 feet here with Mr. Fly. I imagine the Trinity was probably teeming with these giants a few hundred years ago. But these days, they're plucked from the water before they have the opportunity to reach these monstrous lengths. But I suppose, if you had an isolated hole or offshoot off of that river, and it was deep enough and wide enough, and most importantly, off-limits to humans, let's just say I wouldn't go dipping my toes in that water. And speaking of staying away from the water, have you guys heard about this 10-foot great white that was devoured by a much larger carnivore off the shelf of Australia? Now this is the sort of stuff that keeps me up at night. The shark, a 9-meter female, was successfully tagged for tracking and research. And that's where the story starts. Codenamed Shark Alpha, the healthy female left the scene without any sign of distress. Four months later, Shark Alpha's tag was found by a beachcomber. The device washed ashore two and a half miles from where it was attached to the shark. Its data revealed an incredible story. When I was first told about the data came back from the tag that was on the shark, I was absolutely blown away. At 4 a.m. on Christmas Eve, the shark suddenly plunged at high speed straight down the edge of the continental shelf. 
showed this profile going down the shelf to 580 metres and then a huge temperature change. Within seconds, the shark tag recorded a dramatic temperature shift from 46 to 78 degrees Fahrenheit. A temperature that could only be achieved inside the belly of another living animal. The question that not only came to my mind, but everyone's mind who was involved was, what did that? It was obviously eaten. What's going to eat a shark that big? What could kill a three metre great white? The tag recorded 78 degrees for eight days, moving between the surface and a depth of 330 feet before it was released. There was no doubt the seemingly indomitable shark alpha had been attacked and eaten by a super predator of the deep. Whatever that is, it makes a 15-foot alligator gar seem like a little puppy. But it's stories like this one, from the Smithsonian Channel, that I think about just before I jump into any body of water, whether it be a rational thought or not. So thanks again, James, for sending that one in. I always enjoy a good fishtail. Now next up, we venture to the Peach State, where Eric has a few stories he would like to share. Hey Derek, this is Eric. I'm down in Georgia, originally from California. Thank you so much for the show. Uh, I was all because this is regarding the water stories, manifestations, monsters in water. I'm from Montclair, Virginia, which is a uh, neighborhood about five miles long, and it is a man-made lake, and that's surrounded by a golf course, 18 holes, uh, that was built in the 80s, 70s, and they turned it into a residential neighborhood. So I have uh, lifeguarded at that lake. I've gone skinny dipping in high school around like 2007, 2008 in that lake. Never really liked swimming in it. Never. Always got really weird vibes actually being in the water. There was a man that mysteriously died or drowned while he was out with a woman he was renting a house in the neighborhood to. So uh, I don't know if she's a monster, but in any case, there definitely have been bodies that have died in that water. Well, at night, you know, we take the boats, pontoon boats out, whoever had a boat, you know, on their dock, and about uh, seven or eight of us, you know, having some beer, doing what kids do in high school. Well, we're out on the lake, and this rowboat with a little motor on the back is coming towards us. You know, the motor's on, it's cruising, and then it, it kind of comes up beside us, and that's when I noticed there's nobody in it. There's not a single person operating this boat, and it turns and just keeps on going past us towards like the west end of the lake until it kind of disappears into the fog. And my buddy operating our boat, he was like, yeah, ghost boat. And that's just what we called it, ghost boat. Another instance of actually some real life monsters. Uh, I, I spent some time in Fiji in uh, 2012 on a mission trip. And I didn't see this with my own eyes, but in the evening, some of the locals took a group of guys out for spear fishing while the tide was down. And uh, what they thought was a rock ended up being this rather large octopus. And according to the people that came back, they said that that octopus grabbed the Fijian spear and snapped it in two right in front of them. And then for me, during the day, during that trip, I was swimming out to a dock off of this like a uh, little resort beach, probably about 50 yards off the shore, you know, right past the coral where it turns into open water. 
and I have my snorkeling mask on and I realize that there's a shadow of something that is uh, a fish or some type of fish uh, that is much bigger than me. And so I start to realize how small I really am in open water. So needless to say, I hopped up on that dock and I really didn't want to swim back in. But uh, those are some real life monsters, including some paranormal ones. Thank you so much. Hope this makes the show. Bye-bye. Thanks, Eric. Eric's call reminds me of a segment from one of my favorite television programs from my childhood. Foxes and later sci-fi's sightings. One of those people contacted us with a remarkable photograph that he took near his home in Hayward, Wisconsin. Northern Wisconsin is a freshwater fishing paradise, and some say a haven for ghostly apparitions. I looked up and here I see this white figure above the tree line, and it's slowly descending towards the trees. Al Denninger has been a fishing guide through the waters of the Chippewa Flowage for 17 years. He knows these waters like the back of his hand. But last October, he saw something he couldn't explain. You could see it actually pass through the trees and slowly descend right above the shoreline. And the object was uh, 10, 12 feet tall. I took one picture of the, with the Polaroid. Slowly, this object moved down the shoreline that way, towards the, about towards the west. Moved about 50 yards, stayed there maybe 10, 15 seconds, and slowly ascended right straight up into the sky and was gone. Denninger claims he photographed this apparition of a human form floating above an area locals call Ghost Island. I had the original looked at by a photo expert. He says, first of all, you can't dupe up a Polaroid. He says, well, I can't tell you what it is, but whatever it is, it's really there. When word of Denninger's photo got out, more eyewitnesses came forward claiming they'd also seen the apparition. Two young men were fishing there at midnight, and one of them saw a white-robed figure about eight feet from the ground sort of floating among the graves. Al sent them the picture, and they called up and says, that is what we saw. Stories of discontented spirits haunting Ghost Island have existed since Wisconsin's Chippewa River was dammed in the 1920s, causing floodwaters to engulf the island's historic cemetery. Most of the graves were moved to higher ground, but locals worry about the plots that were left behind. Could the apparitions be restless souls searching for their displaced loved ones? I've always had an open mind, and I've always figured that uh, you're a little naive to think you're probably the only one in this universe, but uh, whatever I saw, it definitely wasn't from anything I've ever seen before. To take a look at this segment, and more importantly, the photograph, check out the show notes. It's not an easy thing to find on your own. And of course, our one big body of water back home growing up, which happens to now be a huge Bigfoot ground zero, was also created by damming up a creek and flooding in small town. So whenever we were there and I did overcome my fear of monster fish and jump into the murky water, my thoughts and fears would instantly race to the thought of bodies buried deep down beneath. Now I'm certain I pestered my dad relentlessly with questions. Even back then I thought about such things as are they still buried down there? Do they dig them up and move them first. Well, after hours of research this week, I think I finally know the answer. Although the majority of the town of Clio, Ohio, I like the ring of that, although most of it was swallowed by the muddy waters of Salt Fork Lake, the cemetery was spared and can still be found today as Pleasant Hill Cemetery. So long story short, 
although I'm sure there's probably a body or two down there somewhere. An entire town's worth of bodies are not lurking beneath, grasping to pull me under. Not only that, but the town had been defunct for some 50 years before the lake was formed, so there really wasn't much to submerge in the first place. But at any rate, back to that photo. It's a Polaroid of a spooky-looking Midwest lake. The fall colors in the distance, the murky water in the foreground. And just as Tim White said in the package, there's clearly a white object seemingly hovering above the water's surface. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like your classic ghost, but perhaps dissipated at the knees. Whatever it is, it's been permanently lodged in my brain ever since I first saw it in the early 90s. I highly recommend you hit up the show notes and give this thing a look, and let me know what you think of this guy photographed. Now speaking of seeing things, if you've got a ghost on photo, or any other photo, video, or even audio of the paranormal or unexplained, I want to see it. Shoot me an email at mauvideosubmission at gmail.com. That's mauvideosubmission at gmail.com. And I'll always contact any video owner before using the footage in any way. Without trying to give too much away, I'm trying to find ways to expand the MAU brand, and video submissions seem to be the obvious next move. Well, moving right along. For our next entry, we venture north of the border, where Hayden, in Canada, has a good one waiting for us. Hi, my name is Hayden. I'm from Estevan, Saskatchewan, Canada. This is a water story, and it's not really my story. It's my dad's story that he told me. Um, Personally, I think this falls under the urban legend category, but I thought I should tell you anyways because it's uh, what she wanted. Well, okay, here it goes. My dad worked at a uh, water treatment plant in town for the city of Estevan, and apparently there's a, a ghost that haunts the upstairs part of it. His name is Bob, and uh, apparently Bob died by following in the like the rotors that got jumped out of the water and got stuck in there and drowned and died. I looked into it to find if there's any truth to it. I couldn't find anything. The closest I could find is that during one of the neighboring towns, uh, a guy jumped in the water tower and committed suicide. I don't know if that's just how it crossed over or uh, it was just a story someone made up to have fun with it. Uh, yep, and that's it. Uh, thank you. Uh, that is all. Bye. Thanks, Aiden. As I do with nearly every call I play on the show, I did a little digging and learned that water treatment plants are paranormal hotspots. There are many purportedly haunted treatment plants across the country, so much so that a wastewater engineering firm that assists local water treatment facilities in Indiana issued a blog post to its customers asking if their treatment plants are haunted, and then goes on to explain reasons why it may only appear that way, including some issues we've spoke about here on the show, like strange acoustics, rodents in the building, and the noisy plumbing issue known as water hammer. But don't go dismissing those reports too quickly. 
encounters like Hayden spoke of are more frequent than one would expect, and much harder to explain away. Thanks again, Hayden, for the call. Now at long last, we steady our legs as land crests the horizon. Soon, we'll have our feet on solid ground. But not before. One more deep dive. So please, welcome our anonymous caller from the state of New York to the program. Hi, Derek. First time caller, long time listener. This is a submission for your water episode. I'm a wildlife technician in the state of New York, and one night for last hour on survey, we came across this what looked to be a small bird come out from the reservoir do a figure eight, and I was spotlighting in the bow of the boat. So I got the light on this bird, and it wasn't a bird. It had two legs, very humanoid, a torso with long butterfly wings on the back of it, and they were flapping vertically. They were not flapping horizontally like a bird. They were positioned vertical on the back of the torso of this thing, and it was flapping vertically like a hummingbird or butterfly but it had two legs hanging down and it was this bright white image and it came out of the reservoir to figure eight and then went back into the reservoir. I'm not sure what this is, nor should I speculate what this thing could have been because of my career and because of that, I'm also asking that my voice be hidden using software. So that's my submission and thanks, Derek. Appreciate the work. Keep it up. Bye. Thank you, caller. In full disclosure, his voice was altered as he requested. So given the fact that our caller is a wildlife technician, we'll just go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't mistake a swallow, bat, or even a dipping luna moth for this strange creature. For reference, the luna moth is the moth in the Lunesta commercials. So if it's not any of those, what else could it be? Well, after scrubbing the web and my files for literal hours, I was unable to find anything remotely close to our caller's claims. I found some small humanoids. None of them flew, and certainly none of them dove in and out of the water. So I'm hoping someone out there listening knows exactly what our caller saw. Until then, however, I'm going to leave you with one of the few humanoid-shaped water creatures that I could think of out there. A creature from the far-off land of Japan. A monster said to pull children beneath the river rapids. A monster known as the Kappa. The Kappa, which translates as water child, is a creature that is usually about five feet in height has scaly skin, and is usually blue or green in color. It has a turtle shell on its back and a beak, as well as a kind of plate on the top of its head in which it always has to carry water. If it spills this water, 
then it loses all of its power and it can uh, die within a very short period of time. The kappa is perceived to be a very malevolent and quite violent creature. And in fact, children are warned to stay away from bodies of water because the kappa will actually drag them in and drown them. That clip was courtesy of Ancient Aliens and features friend of the show, Ken Gerhardt. I'll talk about a Teenage Mutant Ninja Nightmare. The kappa are just one of those creatures that you just can't get out of your mind. And I suppose you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm safe. I'm never going to find myself in Japan. Well, on March 3rd of 1972, at 1 a.m., a policeman of the town of Loveland, Ohio, reported seeing a four to five foot, leathery skinned upright creature that somewhat fits the Kappa's description. While this might seem like a one off encounter, a fellow cop at the Loveland PD admitted to not only seeing the creature, but claims to have shot and killed it. Or shot and killed one of them. The creature was spotted and videoed in the summer of 2016 near the town of Loveland. And of course, I've included that footage in the show notes. So it almost seems like there could be a Kappa-like creature in the southwest corner of the Buckeye State. Then again, that same officer that claimed to have killed the creature was also adamant that the creature was later identified as a five-foot iguana with a missing tail. Thanks again, caller, for sharing your story. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. The brand new Monsters Among Us theme is by Carl Casey at White Bad Audio. And the rest of that terrifying score was provided by Carl Casey at Whitebat Audio and Co.ag Music. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.